The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 28, Blacking Out Blackmail. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In this episode, we will be continuing our analysis of the CIA defense explored by Watergate burglary supervisor Howard Hunt, who is simultaneously working part-time at the White House and full-time at a CIA cover company, Mulling & Company, at the time of the burglary. We'll also be looking at the national security defense offered after trial by two of the four Cuban Watergate burglars, Eugenio Martinez and Virgilio Gonzalez, who believe they were working on a legitimate CIA mission when breaking into the Watergate building, but who believe they were required to plead guilty. We discuss the involvement of the Cuban burglars in episodes 17 and 18. We will as well be digging into the wrangling over the admissibility of evidence proposed to Judge Sirica by U.S. Attorney's Office Prosecutors Earl Silbert and Seymour Glanzer, who we introduced back in Episode 7, and the consequences of Dean's withholding of Hunt's notebooks, which we discuss in Episode 8. Finally, to refresh you, I'll use the term Woodstein throughout this episode as shorthand for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the two main Watergate reporters from the Washington Post. And with that, Let's jump into episode 28, Blacking Out Blackmail. With the production of the first set of Oval Office tapes in late 1973, Dean was forced to admit having kept the notebooks, not giving them to the FBI, and later destroying them. His defense for not telling the prosecutors after he turned prosecution witness? He forgot. The Post overlooked this incredible claim. In any case, he fessed up to sequestering the notebooks to Sirica, as he had to, portraying the sequestering as protecting his bosses. With this necessary admission to Sirica, the issue of the missing notebooks again arose, for the first time since the Post reported the story in early March of 1973. Interestingly, the Post editors assigned this November 1973 story to reporter Timothy Robinson, rather than Woodstein, who had written the March story. In this story, Robinson paraphrases Hunt as having wanted the notebooks in order to support his defense that, quote, he thought the Watergate operation was legal because it had been approved by high government officials, unquote. But the article did not explain how such approval would be a defense. This, of course, as we've explained in earlier episodes, would only have been a defense if the operation was a national security operation with presidential approval. So what is missing from Robinson's rendition is the idea of national security. National security, in turn, would lead one to look at the CIA. Of course, the CIA defense had been explained by McCord in his testimony of May 1973 about the approach he rejected from Hunt's lawyer. Interestingly, while McCord had rejected the CIA defense angrily, saying that the CIA was not involved, he himself had told both the Post in March of 1973 and later the Senate that he thought that this was a legitimate national security operation approved by the Attorney General. He simply did not admit that the CIA was involved. 
While we don't know what Robinson asked Hunt or Bittman in November 1973, a reporter with the slightest curiosity would have asked how such high-level approval was a defense, assuming he was not already told that. Certainly, there was no reason in November 1973 that Bittman would have held back to Robinson, and he apparently did not as to the idea of high-level approval. This would seem to buttress the notion that in March 1973, he would have told Woodstein the same thing. That is to say that the notebooks would have buttressed his defense of high-level presidential approval. We can thus infer from the limited expose of Robinson in November 1973 that that same information was available to Woodstein in March of 1973, but was not published. In the same November 6, 1973 article, Robinson notes that Gonzalez and Martinez should be, quote, allowed to withdraw their pleas because they thought the break-in was a legitimate government intelligence operation. What Robinson did not hook up in the article was that the two Cubans considered the destroyed notebooks to be evidence of this legitimate intelligence operation. Wouldn't this connection have helped the reader? So in talking about Gonzalez and Martinez's defense, Robinson conceals or at least omits the connection to the notebooks. And in talking about Hunt's defense, he omits the notion of the national security intelligence operation that Gonzalez and Martinez are talking about. Of course, had Robinson done so, he would have also given the reader a clue as to why Hunt thought high-level official approval would be a defense. Without this connection, many readers would view this defense of Hunt as a stretch, a weak, desperate defense. So what if there is high-level presidential approval? Viewing this article from the vantage point of our podcast, this rendition of Hunt's defense is obvious, but it was not then. And that was because the Post did not make the connection. Martinez and Gonzalez had said before publicly that they thought they were on a CIA mission. And this was widely explained, especially by the Post, as being the result of Hunt's duping the Cubans. We note that Robinson here refrained in his November 6, 1973 article from naming the agency as part of the Cubans' defense. So while we give credit to Robinson for writing a piece more helpful than the earlier Woodstein piece, we cannot help but discern a reluctance by the Post to suggest the obvious. Hunt, Martinez, and Gonzalez considered that Watergate was a legitimate CIA operation. Yes, the article's headline that, quote, Dean admits to destroying evidence, unquote, is instructive, but it is not as important as the implications of that destruction. We also note that one thing the Post reporting omitted altogether was any suggestion that the notebooks would have implicated Dean himself as an author of the operation. To be sure, at the time, there was only scant evidence which would allow one to draw that inference. And so we cannot fault the post here for that cover-up as being intentional. We only note that destruction of evidence to a skilled observer as well as to a juror with common sense suggests a guilty mind of the destroyer, especially Dean's failure to tell the prosecutor about his act of destruction. More skillful reporters should have suggested this inference, but in this case, we do not suggest an intentional cover-up of Dean's participation in the burglary operation. We do argue that the Post took pains to conceal Hunt's CIA defense, which in turn concealed actual CIA participation in the burglary. Now, with this background, let us get to the theme of this episode, Blacking Out Blackmail. With Hunt's plea and the post covering up of a CIA defense, 
Did that quash all hopes that the public trial would reveal CIA participation? And, of course, its corollary, the targeting of escort referral conversations. No, it did not. As we noted above, the prosecution had been long preparing for Hunt's CIA defense, which apparently escaped all reporting by the supposedly vigilant post. Perhaps to counter this defense, but certainly to explain motive, the prosecutors were preparing a case which co-opted much evidence that Hunt would likely have offered. That is to say, both CIA participation and the overhearing of naughty girls and naughty boys would have come to the fore. Let me for a moment go off on a slight tangent. When an experienced litigator in preparation for trial runs across clearly provable facts which seem inconsistent with his originally planned case, he is wise to incorporate such provable facts in his own narrative. This would be the situation facing the prosecutors if Hunt was planning to show a CIA defense, in part by pointing to a Mullen CIA cover contract, which the prosecution knew was in existence. But whether or not forced by Hunt into a CIA-based narrative, the prosecution certainly planned such a case. The prosecution, of course, knew that Mullen had a cover contract. It also knew that the burglars were tapping the phone of Spencer Oliver Jr., and they also knew that the fruits of the calls were embarrassing sexual assignations. These embarrassing sexual assignations were testified to at length by both Silbert and Glanzer in Silbert's confirmation hearings in the spring of 1973. So there is no doubt that the overhearings were primarily sexual and salacious. The prosecution, putting these elements together in a competent but perhaps imperfect way, seized upon a strangely coincidental fact. Spencer Oliver Sr., was in competition with Hunt for future control of the lucrative cover contract with Mullen. Senior himself was apparently hooked up with the CIA and had unsuccessfully sought to bring Junior into Mullen employment, successfully fought by Hunt. So the prosecution was planning to portray Hunt as seeking girly dirt on Oliver Jr. as part of his campaign against Oliver Sr. for future control of Mullen. In short, Hunt was seeking blackmail dirt on Oliver Sr. So the prosecution planned a blackmail prosecution. This narrative, when sensationally revealed to the public at trial, would have disclosed all of the elements we accused the Post of covering up. Hunt's CIA connections through Mullen, his CIA-based motives to burglarize and eavesdrop, and the salacious nature of the overhearings. Had Hunt been pursuing his CIA defense at trial, these same elements would have been in play, but with legitimate intelligent motives as a basis, not blackmail. Let's focus for a moment on the term blackmail. Had it been publicized that, quote, blackmail, unquote, was a possible motive, the first question which would arise in public discourse was, what was the compromising material sought? Campaign information would not be in that category. So discussing blackmail would have naturally led to the call girl referral operation, which in turn would tarnish the DNC. But more important, the question would be the purpose of the blackmail. Again, the DNC would not be blackmailed with evidence of its campaign strategies, and the blackmail would have had to involve Hunt and Mullen and Company. So the public eventually would have been pointed toward the Mullen contract with the CIA. In short, the term blackmail 
would have led to call girl talk and the CIA. And certainly the evidence in support of that theory would have loudly spoken to those issues. In spite of the sensational effect of Post reporting in the fall of 1972 to portray the burglary as part of a campaign of spying and sabotage in support of an election campaign, all of that would have flown out the window with the case that the prosecution was intending to put in evidence. The prosecution was tight-lipped and did not seek pretrial publicity about its blackmail theme. So we do not contend that the Post could have learned of this plan from the prosecution's office. But local FBI agents, again, would have helped to prepare the prosecutor's case and, again, could have informed the Post reporters with whom many were very close. The prosecutors were tight-lipped and did not seek pretrial publicity about its blackmail theme. So we do not contend that the Post could have learned of this plan from the prosecution's office. But local FBI agents, again, would have helped to prepare the prosecution's case and, again, would have been able to inform Post reporters with whom many were close. In determining whether the Post knew at some point of the prosecutor's blackmail theme, let's first note that in the summer of 1972, the Post the DNC, and a Mullen lawyer, Hobart Taylor, all met to discuss plans to keep Mullen and the CIA out of the public eye. Clearly, by this time, the FBI had determined that the key fit Maxie Wells' desk, and Maxie Wells had already resigned. It is likely that all involved knew of what was in the desk. We also refer back to an earlier episode wherein DNC outside lawyer Charles O. Morgan asked for a luncheon in December 1972 with Silbert and Glanzer. This invitation, we infer, was not casual. Clearly, the DNC had already known that the prosecution planned to have Baldwin testify to lurid overhearings. This is obvious since the Democrats had an inside line to Baldwin's lawyers and Baldwin was being questioned at length by the prosecution. So the DNC would know what the prosecution was up to. And we know that the law firm had completed its non-interview interview with Baldwin in late August 1973. And with Casadento and Califano being tight, the girly evidence was clearly known to the DNC thus the hire of Charles Morgan to try to stop the testimony about it. It is also possible that even before the luncheon, the Democrats knew of the blackmail theme, which Morgan skillfully drew out of Silbert's mouth when they spoke. Did Morgan know of the blackmail theme before the lunch? We think that is likely. But whether the Democrats knew this before the lunch, they certainly knew of it as of the lunch, and prepared to have Morgan try his desperation past play and seek to quash the testimony at trial. In any case, given the Post's relationship with the Democrats, it is likely that the paper knew of the blackmail theme, at least by December, when Morgan had lunch with Silbert and Glanzer, knew of the girly overhearings far earlier, and knew of Morgan's plans. And it also knew that the Democrats deeply wished, as shown by Morgan's hiring, to keep it all hidden. In short, it is logical to infer that the Post sought to protect its Siamese twin, the DNC, and had the motive to hide the girly talk from the public. And hiding the girly talk would also require hiding the participation of the CIA, since the CIA was not interested in campaign strategies. With Hunt's plea, the chances of revelations from the defense was gone at the beginning of the January trial. But the dangers posed by the prosecution's case still loomed as trial approached. 
Up to this point, there are strong inferences that the Post knew of plans of the prosecutors to involve the CIA and Cole girls in the case. We do not have proof positive that the Post knew of the, quote, blackmail, unquote, theme so stated. This is why Morgan's motion at the start of the trial to quash Baldwin's testimony about what he overheard is so important. On January 5, 1973, in open court, Morgan and Sirica had a memorable exchange. Morgan told the court that the prosecution intended to show, quote, the motive in this case was blackmail, not politics, unquote. Sirica then asked, quote, you say the motive the government expects to show is blackmail, unquote. Morgan answered, yes. Sirica, taken aback, said, quote, that is the first time I heard that, unquote. As Morgan quipped in his book, quote, actually, it was the second time in 10 minutes he had heard that, unquote. Since Gerald Alch had just said that hypothetically, the government might do just that in his role as McCord's lawyer. Our point here is that this colloquy should have yielded a stunning headline in the Post. Public then and the public now, approximately 50 years later, is still scratching its collective head over the motives for this senseless burglary. Yet there was a possible, indeed probable motive, spelled out in open court. To be sure, Morgan argued that the overhearings were for a, quote, political use rather than a blackmail use, unquote. But this argument in open court should have alerted the public that the prosecution, usually given credibility by the public, was going to prove that it was blackmail use. But the Post did not cover this highly significant argument, and the important word, quote, blackmail, unquote, was never printed on Post pages. Indeed, this argument about this evidence was not even summarized in the Post. A cover-up of the potential blackmail theme sure looks like it. After these arguments, Sirick allowed the prosecution to examine Baldwin as to a general characterization of the overhearings, that is to say, as intimate, salacious, and highly embarrassing. But Sirica also allowed Morgan to make an emergency appeal. One week later, Morgan, in open court before the appellate panel, repeated Silbert's luncheon claim, quote, Hunt was trying to blackmail Spencer, and I'm going to prove it. This is a quote from the prosecutor's own mouth, incidentally not objected to by Silbert and apparently corroborated by Morgan's clever reference to his associate Hope Eastman, who was in court and who also heard it. Judge Baslin, likely not understanding the full case that the type-lip Silbert was to present, wondered aloud why anyone would wish to blackmail Spencer Oliver Jr., a man of presumed modest means. So Bazelon himself discussed blackmail in open court. Bazelon then reversed Sirick and quashed Baldwin's testimony characterizing the salacious conversations monitored. But it is of great significance that the Post published not a word of the blackmail theme, nor, of course, the intimate nature of the conversations overheard. Why is it that after 50 years of speculation as to motive, mostly about the red herrings put forth by the Post, we are talking about, quote, blackmail, unquote, now, and that it is a novel discussion. It is because this potential prosecution theme was covered up by Watergate's paper of record, and this in one of our country's most important trials. I will ask those listening to this podcast, have you ever before heard of the blackmail theme 
that was proposed by the prosecution in this case and that the prosecution intended of adducing at trial. Before we leave this topic, remember our earlier thoughts on proof of intent. Even if we hypothesize that the Post innocently missed Hunt's CIA defense and the blackmail prosecution theme at or before trial, these issues were explored indulgently at Silbert's confirmation hearing in the spring of 1974. Let me correct my previous references to these hearings as occurring in spring of 1973. They occurred in the spring of 1974. And remember, this is while Nixon was still fighting to stay in office. The Post published nothing of these key points of Silbert's testimony. Covering up his testimony at this stage of the scandal was easily accomplished because the Post was filling its paper daily with a bewildering array of Watergate stories and other scandalous bits that were being uncovered used to sink Nixon. As the Post now hyped not just Watergate, but the fielding burglary, milk lobby contributions in exchange for price supports, and the alleged ITT antitrust fix. The Post as well exposed shady dealings with one Robert Vesco in the Nixon administration, and other bits too numerous to mention. So it was very easy for the Post to point the public to these shiny objects. Silbert's testimony was not the only game in town, and it was easy for the Post to conceal what went on in those hearings. And let's assume against all evidence that the Post innocently missed these matters, even during the Silbert hearings. Let's assume against all evidence that the Post innocently missed these matters, even during the Silbert hearings. It certainly refused notice of them when I published Postgate in November 2019. Its silence on the damning, strongly documented allegations of this book speaks volumes about the Post-guilty mind. We have already seen the Post-guilty overheated negative reaction to the first Wells v. Liddy verdict, a reaction which the Post knew in hindsight was not a good way to proceed if it wished to hide its faulty reporting. False and deceitful reporting is not a crime, but it is a dereliction of a publication's duty to the public. The Post has long proclaimed proudly its duty to democracy and the public. Democracy dies in darkness, it states proudly every day on its masthead. It's reporting on the CIA defense and also on the blackmail theme, or should I say it's non-reporting, bear the earmarks of deliberate concealment and suppression, seeking not to inform the public, but to deceive it. In conclusion, fair-minded jurors in the court of public opinion should find the Post guilty of deliberate concealment of important aspects of Watergate. In doing so, they have helped write history that is false by concealment for American students to study. This concludes our discussion of blacking out blackmail. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject entitled The Mysteries of Watergate. What really happened? While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.